thought capital. The world changed dramatically. Sustainable business practices. Phenomenally important with the young people. Riding the Chinese tiger. Leadership goes beyond making a profit. Let's be forward thinking. We do need to accommodate difference. Hello, I'm Michael Pascoe. If we're ever to have equality. Welcome to Thought Capital, the podcast that delves into the wealth of ideas created by the experts at Monash Business School in Melbourne, Australia. Energy policy, one of the greatest challenges of our time, and we're still trying to come up with the viable solutions. Now, if I could do one thing on energy policy, it would be to put a price on carbon. That's the view of the majority, if not all, economists in the environmental and energy space. Climate change policy in Australia has become highly politicised. The apparent trigger for leadership change is on both sides of politics. Yet we have committed to reducing carbon emissions, moving away from fossil fuels to renewable energy sources. The problem is, how? Dr Gordon Leslie, Department of Economics lecturer, focuses on energy market policy, competition and consumer engagement. Welcome, Dr Leslie. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. You've taken a particular interest in researching the effect on electricity supply and prices of rooftop solar panels. What did you find? The obvious, but the essential. More rooftop solar means more energy is generated at our homes in the middle of the day. Perhaps what's more nuanced is, well, how does the rest of the energy market kind of respond to that? And so what I found is actually, in some cases, the more efficient fossil fuel generators, and this is in the state of Western Australia, they've reduced their output a little bit, but the less efficient peaking generators, which are more flexible in when they can go on and off, have increased their production. So there's actually, across the whole fleet, we've lost a little bit of efficiency, I guess, in, in, in the way we use our gas-fired generators. Lost efficiency, but what about the carbon output? Absolutely. So overall, less carbon is getting emitted, but what it's giving us is a bit of a window into what the future is going to look like. And so the more flexible generators, which can just kind of fire up, think of them like a jet engine, blast on, blast off. We need them to kind of uh, produce more, and the kind of the steam engine type power plants, the ones where that's a lot of energy to get them up and running, but once they're up and running, they're efficient. Well, they're perhaps a little less viable. The economics aren't working out as well for them as you increase the solar penetration. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's probably just the market, as in how could it be good? Well, it would be good if we end up getting the lowest cost of supply, which means solar in the middle of the day and then blasting more with the peakers at the, at the start and the end of the day. If overall that picture uses less carbon emissions and is cheaper than having the kind of steady base load running, well, it's a good thing. Where there's the potential for it to be a bad thing is if the carbon intensity of these peaking units was so high or, you know, just the, the costs of doing that is so high, which, which, you know, is a concern if we perhaps over-subsidise solar. Um, and perhaps at some point there's, a, there's going to be a tipping point where it's not that valuable to add more solar into the system. There is the third leg, mm-hmm. and that is a more efficient storage mechanism for solar. That's the missing part of the, of the puzzle at present? Potentially. I mean, um, what, it's cost-effective enough to keep putting solar into the system that these storage owners might compete to buy up that energy that's produced in the middle of the day and then output it at the end of the day when we all come home and turn our lights on. At the moment, 
instead of using batteries by and large, the, the, the market is using these, these gas peakers, so we're not storing the solar, but we may get there and it may be that the, the economics of storage is only going to improve with more solar penetration. Trying to tie you down a bit here, mm-hmm. are you really saying solar doesn't make much sense unless storage works? It's available and there. Not necessarily. What I am trying to say is that more solar will improve the economics of storage because what it will do will allow you to charge up your batteries potentially for a lower price. How efficient is the Australian energy market now? Well, it's certainly subject to a lot of government inquiry and public inquiry. There are a lot of issues at play at the moment. A major one does seem to be uh, concentration of ownership of a lot of the key generating stocks and natural gas producers there can be quite negative consequences for the public if you allow too much market power in in any industry, uh, especially one as uh, important as the energy industry. I'm not sure if if reform is required, but certainly uh, the concentration must be put in the industry is getting put under the microscope and we've got to perhaps think about encouraging more independent generator owners to enter the, the market. As an economist, is this an equation that can't balance unless carbon is priced? So a carbon price just helps us balance the social costs with the private incentives. So economists love a carbon price, and and, and certainly we know that it should be bigger than zero and less than infinity. There is some damage which is getting done for all the CO2 that we pump into the atmosphere. Now, if we were to put a price on carbon that would, would definitely align the, uh, the incentives of the big generator owners, particularly when it comes to investment in new projects, with either the Australian or the global people. At the moment, our electricity generation, about 60 to 70% is coming from fossil fuels still, despite all the kind of renewable energy penetration we've had in the last decade or so. Does a carbon tax end up being paid by the consumer or the polluter? A little bit of both. So I think this is one which we can't beat around the bush, It will push up uh, cost of consumption actions that have some sort of carbon content in the production process. So, you know, we could think of transportation. You'll pay more to fill up at the pump if you were to price carbon in. Likewise, for electricity, in the times of day, uh, in particular in the wholesale market where you are having heavy reliance on the fossil-based generators, prices will be higher. That will get passed through to customers. And I don't know about you, but certainly... When my prices go up for a product I use, I tend to use less of it. By design, that is why pricing things we don't like or taxing things we don't like is, is a good strategy. Is there a danger, though, that big companies pay the carbon tax, just pass the price on to the consumer and keep polluting anyway? Yes, there is the chance that the tax would be fully passed through. I, I dispute that's the case. As I said, I think we would use less of something that's priced higher and we'll start consuming less carbon intensive products uh, and change our behaviours, it is giving a price advantage to the activities which don't have that much pollution built into them. Well, what are the other models? What's the alternative? Well, I guess what we're seeing here is instead of taxing the bad, we're subsidising the good, which is, of course, inherently subjective. At the moment, we, we are still uh, providing a lot of subsidies to s- solar panel owners, and, 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 and these are often in the form of, of what's called a feed-in tariff. So the more uh, energy that I uh, put back into the grid, I get compensated a little fee on, on top of that. There's also a lot of uh, other renewable energy programs. And so 
absolutely, that'll encourage cleaner energy, but it may not be the most efficient and it may not even be the most fair. And of course, that money has to come from somewhere. And so certainly uh, the ACCC in their recent uh, review of retail electricity prices in, I think, late 2018, they've shown that the, the cost of these environmental programs is rising. And of course, it's pretty much funded by the non-solar owners. So the longer you're kind of left out, the more people you're paying this little subsidy to, it's probably going to result in in, in quite a distributional impact. Economists may or may not know much about politics, but if you were Prime Minister for a week, if you didn't have to worry about the politics, you've got the power, what energy policy would you push? I would love to have a carbon tax. We saw it in 2012. Uh, Unfortunately, it ended in 2014. I think that business groups are screaming for some sort of certainty and and perhaps less distortionary incentives. And as I said, some sort of refund mechanism, which is clear, easy to communicate to the public, where we just kind of say, okay, this isn't just a hike. We're just trying to move your consumption patterns away from sort of more polluting activities to the cleaner activities. So this is correcting a distortion. The big challenge is what price do you put on carbon? There are are a lot of uh, ways in which you can get it get an estimate as to how the future damages might play out. Uh, certainly a few years ago, there used to be this consensus that the true social cost of carbon was about 20 to $40 per tonne. Now, that's at a global scale. It seems to have risen a lot more in recent times, maybe towards 80 to 100 And that's, again, that's sort of saying, if I emit one tonne of CO2, it affects the whole world. We may also want to just be a little bit selfish and say, well, what's the damage to Australians? We're basically going to cut back our emissions to save everybody else. We want them to do it too. And so that is probably why you just want to have a price on carbon to start with, just to get the mechanism in place. And then when you do have your big international treaties or you're negotiating trade with other countries, you say, well, I'll raise mine if you raise yours a little bit. And that is perhaps one way we could get towards more global agreements. And in fact, I've got to say that a lot of people's dream is that if there was leadership from China or, or, or the USA on this, they could say, well, we've got a price on carbon. You want to trade with us? Well, we're going to put a border tax, an import tariff on your goods because you're not pricing in carbon like we are. The climate scientists carry most of the heat, so to speak, from the climate debate. Is it up to economists to come up with a proper way of measuring carbon impact on the economy? Economists definitely have a role to play, but it is really important for us to have a framework which which can't be gamed too heavily. And and the reason I say that is when you start looking 100 years into the future, how you discount the future uh, really affects your cost estimates. Meaning that if I say that, as you know, a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. Well, if I say it's worth 5% more versus 2% more, well, if you compound that out over 100 years, it has a really, really big impact. And so in some ways, that, that is a question for more than just economists to say, how do we discount the future? How much more do we value life today than tomorrow? I love economists, but maybe you don't want us to, to make that call for you. The question of building a new coal-fired power station has become political in itself. Does it make sense economically? It is a bit hard to, to say whether the economics of, of coal, if we were just to hold today's policies flat for 100 years, whether it's a good prospect or not from a, from a business perspective. But certainly, I think under 
today's current kind of uncertain conditions, it doesn't seem to be a lot of enthusiasm to build a new plant. The big picture sometimes says, you know, we're, obviously we're not alone in the world. Uh, does it matter what we do, though, because we're so small? The problem is global, and the solution probably has to be also global, and I think we've got to be good citizens here. Anytime you can export technologies or ideas, there is a potential multiplier impact of it. So the we're too small argument, well, let's try to turn this into an opportunity to try to amplify any good ideas we come up with uh, and promote them around the world. I suppose there's the line that, look, I am a tiny, tiny, tiny part of the Australian tax base, mm -hmm. so it doesn't matter if I don't pay any tax. Exactly right. And that's why we have a carbon problem and that's why we have this pollution problem is because individually what we do really has the most minuscule impact. But if you have billions of people with a minuscule impact, that's a big impact. And that's why I do kind of really like the idea of taxes and other sort of uh, pricing mechanisms to push everybody to just act in their own self-interest, but to be a bit more in the social interest. <laughs> By 2030, Monash University's goal is to have net zero carbon emissions across its four campuses. It's investing $135 million in a range of energy efficiency programs, from solar power on rooftops to buying electric power from a wind farm in Victoria, switching to LED lights and getting off natural gas. I went on a tour of the new Biomed building at the Clayton campus and found batteries the size of shipping containers. My name's Scott Ferraro. I'm the Program Director of the Net Zero Initiative at Monash University. We're standing on top of the Biomedical Learning and Teaching Building here at our Clayton campus. Um, this building's an exemplar of the, the Net Zero Initiative. It's a new building uh, which has been opened uh, within the last 12 months. It's an all-electric building, so we've shifted away from natural gas on this building. It's got oversized heat pumps which will provide not only heating and cooling to this building but will also service the broader precinct so we can shift surrounding buildings um, away from natural gas for the heating and cooling and hot water as well. It's been designed with Passive House principles in mind. Um, it didn't reach Passive House certification but it is a highly energy efficient building and it's also got a megawatt hour of storage on the roof as well. So we're standing in front of the, the batteries on this building. Um, so we've got a megawatt hour um, of vanadium flow batteries and lithium ion batteries. This building will form one of the hubs of our Monash microgrid and it will enable us to be able to shift our load internally in response to external market events. As part of the Net Zero initiative, the university is creating the Monash microgrid. Scott, what is the microgrid? The whole tenant of the Monash microgrid is being able to respond to an external market or network event and to be able to provide that flexibility as cost-effectively as we possibly can to demonstrate that this is technically viable, um, setting up a market to show how the market plays out and how the different actors within the market um, act under these situations, to assess the economic viability of these systems as well, but then also to provide greater benefits to the end customers who've invested in all these different assets so they can realise more value for their electricity generation and use. 
What kind of interest have you had in this project? The interest in the Net Zero program has been pretty broad and far-reaching. Um, last year, we were lucky enough to win the United Nations Momentum for Change Award in recognition for the, the strategy that was, was developed. So um, we had interest and engagement at the, the sort of global level around the program. And the interest there was from the linkage of uh, what we're doing with our physical infrastructure, with our research and teaching. Gordon Leslie, how are you involved in the Monash microgrid? So the Monash microgrid, it's an attempt to try to better coordinate our energy resources, but also our demand for energy throughout the day to, to, to well, for one, save the university money, but two, align more with the environmental impact of consuming energy at different times of the day. You've got reservations about the way solar cells are fitting into our energy mix at the moment, but you're a champion of the Monash grid with solar cells. I hope that's not the message that I've uh, conveyed throughout. I just guess want to emphasise that we can't only put all our resources into uh, developing solar. Um, it is only producing in the middle of the day. We need to also develop complementary technologies. And so that's why I'm really excited about the Monash microgrid because it's sort of, well, how can we complement this uh, big influx of solar we are going to see in sort of these distributed settings throughout the country can we sort of think of coordination devices to, well, manage the batteries as we install them, but also our behaviour? And so I'm really excited by the idea that, hey, we, we might uh, be able to address one of the, the, the big consumption uh, areas of electricity, which is our workplaces, in a kind of clever market uh, environment. Gordon Leslie, thank you for talking to us. I'd also like to thank Scott Ferraro, Program Director of the Monash Net Zero Initiative. You've been listening to Thought Capital from Monash Business School. You can find more episodes on iTunes, Spotify and Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was produced by Tina Zanu, editor is Nadia Hume, sound production by Gareth Popplestone. Executive producer is Helen Westerman. Thought Capital is recorded at Monash School of Media, Film and Journalism.